0: Hi, this is Chris Finan. I am the author of Drugs, the Story of Alcoholism and the Birth of Recovery, and you're listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio.
1: Welcome back. Hey, it is Rebellion Dogs Radio, episode 42. A contemporary look at recovery, mental health, and 12-step life, now with less dogma and more bite. Chris Finan is part of episode 42. We'll be talking to him in just a few minutes. He authored Drunks, an American history of alcoholism and the birth of recovery. This all on the eve of my getting ready to go to AA History Symposium in the Bay Area near San Francisco. It's a weekend getaway. Uh, Who else will be there? Michelle Mirza of uh, AA Archives will be there. Jackie B. is curating it of Recovery Plays by Jackie B. Don M., Mohican Nation founder of The Red Road to Wellbriety. Dan Caracino and Kevin Hanlon. These are the producers of the Emmy Award-winning documentary Bill W., Mike F., co-author of A Thousand Years of Sobriety, he's on the bill. So it's a fun-filled weekend, all-inclusive, food, accommodation, the whole weekend. Go to aahistorysymposium.com, I think it is, maybe .org. Just Google it, and you can get more information about that. I am certainly looking forward to seeing some old friends and making some new friends in the bay area later in the show we'll also have music from the velveteens so let's get to my interview i've been savoring this book since the international conference of secular AA in uh, toronto canada in august finding time to get uh, chris on our show we did that i'm gonna have to beg your indulgence The sound quality of our interview is, uh, what's the technical editor's version? Crap. And if uh, you can bear with me, uh, the content is worth the quality issue. I hope you'll forgive us. Uh, I couldn't hear it while we were recording. Uh, Chris couldn't hear it while we were recording. I've done the best I can to sort of get out the uh noise uh but i'm really not an audio editor i just play one on radio so uh that's all i can say about that let's uh, go to our interview now from december 2018 chris finan author of drunks an american history of alcoholism and the birth of recovery it was a delight to read your book, Chris, and uh, I've always got three books on the go, and uh, I, I just didn't want to rush through this. It reads more like a, uh, a hero's journey, like a saga, like a... Uh, Star Wars or something like that than a, a dry chronology of uh, what the history is and I think that has a lot to do with uh, the characters that you write about and their personal life and their their own alcoholism or the doctors that help the alcoholics and the other thing it, that I noted is it's amazing how many things worked but didn't didn't last the things we use today or 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 things that, that were even more effective than some of the things done today but didn't get preserved in history
0: yeah no it's a um, it is a hero's journey for me you know as somebody who was in recovery obviously when I was researching these people I had a lot of identification with them you know that came out remarkably when I was reading about Indian recovery mm-hmm. um, and it's a long and it is a long story um, it's a long story of multiple, efforts, people have always been trying to get sober. Many have succeeded uh, long before uh, AA, but the history also emphasizes, you know, what a critical role having the right organization plays in, in recovery because as, you know, Bill Wilson put it, you know, there was no mass production of recovery before AA, but there are so many interesting stories, and and these people are my heroes. So I'm glad that I'm glad that came through.
1: Well, let's go back to uh, Handsome Lake, because he, here's a, a character who some of his teachings are still being used in Iroquois religious ceremonies now, right?
0: That's my understanding. At least it was as of you know, the 1950s when anthropologists really uncovered his story. Mm-hmm. And made it possible for me to to investigate that. I've wanted to go and and see if the code of Handsome Lake is still read annually uh, as uh, it was for many years. I mean, his religion he starts it in you know the last year of the eighteenth century,
1: yeah, and
0: yeah, so it's one hundred and fifty years yeah. that uh, it persisted. But I I haven't actually been able to. To run that down. I, uh, it's on my to-do list to see to go back and, and see where uh, the code of handsome lake stands today.
1: Yeah, the uh, but about 150 years is a good run. Uh, I yeah. someone once said to me, what differentiates uh, uh, Europeans from Americans, and the same would be true about Canadians, is uh, in Europe a hundred miles seems like a long distance and in uh america a hundred years seems like a long time yeah that's that's true we think aa's been going for so long but there are a lot of things that lasted longer than than we have so far uh and uh and and handsome lake's legacy is one of them okay now uh let, let's just go with one of the sort of uh, snake oil salesman type guys uh Uh, Keeley. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Now, he still did some good. What can you tell us about uh, Leslie Keeley?
0: Well, Leslie Keeley was a doctor um, who uh, practiced medicine in Illinois. He was a veteran of the Civil War, and when the Civil War ended, he came back to a small town um, about an hour south of uh, Chicago and practiced medicine. and. He thought, um, or he claimed later, mm-hmm. that he had discovered a cure for alcoholism, and um, built a what would today be a multi-million-dollar industry around his gold, his so-called gold cure mm-hmm. uh, for alcoholism, and so that was that was how he presented himself to the world. Um, you know, I, I quote from the testimony of one of. co-founders of the gold cure who fell out with him later and who really claimed that uh, you know that it was a fraud but it was one of the the most productive frauds probably of all time because what it did uh, was it brought uh, alcoholics together for treatment in Dwight Illinois which was the town and there they really produced their own cure you know they even though they were uh, every day, you know, several times a day, they drank the uh, liquid that was supposed to contain the cure. The real cure was that they were together and being together, they were able to, to talk honestly about their problem and to see that there were enormous similarities in their problems and to offer support to each other uh, enough that, so with, that when they left, um they were able to return you know to their communities and um, and started uh, their own league of you know veterans of the uh, of the gold cure and actually persuaded legislatures to con- to send people to Keeley institutes there were more than a hundred Keeley institutes around the country um, by the time of the great depression of the 1890s which um, wiped out a significant number yeah. so a lot of a lot of people got sober there and from what you know fragmentary evidence there is um suggests that at least some of them you know attained long-term sobriety of course we have no way of knowing for sure whether you know they stayed they stayed sober the whole time but it's really a fantastic story about how um sometimes money-making schemes can can really be productive of uh, of recovery.
1: If only we had Facebook back then. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they did pretty good. What just newspapers? It was was heavily promoted by the Chicago Tribune. Yeah. Which was one of the country's leading leading papers, and that was a key to a key to a success. So even the primitive media of the uh, the late nineteenth century was. Because it, it, it spread by word of mouth. These guys would go home to their um, to their communities, their hometowns, and and people would see that they were sober, and um, they actively recruited people to then go uh, to the institute themselves. So that in some places, you know, entire small towns um, sent their you know sent their drunks to to the Keeley Institute.
1: Uh, yeah, it's an amazing story. Uh, we we don't know how many in total uh, had either some partial or permanent success with sobriety.
0: Well, you no, know, because Keeley yeah. himself, you know, as you said, was a bit of a snake oil salesman, and he hid a lot about his business. Um, in particular, he refused to reveal what was in his gold cure. Yeah, um, supposedly projecting his proprietary. Formula, but probably just revealing the fact that it, there was nothing in it that was healthy anyway. He would make large claims. He would claim that hundreds of thousands of people right. uh, got sober. I, I think it's safe to say that tens of thousands of people
1: yeah.
0: were uh, went to the, the institute, and in that and that alone makes it you know a, a real landmark in yeah uh, in recovery.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, there are organizations now, uh, sort of peer-to-peer groups that, you know, haven't masked that that kind of a following. Here's a couple of characters I remember reading about, John Hawkins and Nathaniel Curtis. Are are these people you would have liked to meet if you could have?
0: Well, Hawkins in particular um, is somebody that I spent a lot of time uh, writing about because he was... In my view, he was the preeminent Washingtonian. Mm -hmm. You know, the Washingtonians were, again, you know, one of these really remarkable early movements that are not entirely unknown, but that their history has not been well told before now, in part because this is the 1840s, and, you know, it's difficult to to research, uh, you know, their activities. And it was very spread out, but it was another national movement of... People in recovery for sobriety, and it was a sensation because nobody up to that point believed that it was possible to recover from alcoholism. Right. And again, it was the shock of seeing people who had, you know, been lying in, literally in the gutter, um, getting up and going to meetings, and suddenly becoming productive citizens again. And. and Americans, whether they were drunks or not, flocked to these meetings of Washingtonians to see this miracle and hear these people talk about their recovery. And Hawkins was uh, leader of the, the Washingtonians. He was uh, uh, an unemployed hatter in Baltimore where the Washingtonians started in, in 1840. He went to, he was really struggling, white-knuckling um, his, his most recent abstinence episode, and um, somebody took him to a meeting you know, one of the first Washingtonian meetings and he then became a great um, leader by traveling around the country he, he traveled tens of thousands of miles around the country you know um, helping st- helping start groups um, helping people you know in jails um, come out of jails and go to and get into meetings and um, and he he stuck with it a lot longer than um, a lot of the Washingtonians. The, the movement itself was relatively brief. I mean, it kind of went up like a rocket and came down like a rocket. But uh, Hawkins stayed on the road right up until the end of his life. He he died, you know, just after visiting one of the people he had helped. It was a great story, and his and it was well told by his son in a biography. So I was able to find a lot of detail about his story there. But the Washingtonians. You know, even though they were, they passed quickly, they left a lot of, they encouraged a lot of um, investigations into recovery, including by a lot of doctors and the whole movement to start opening inebriate homes and asylums to help alcoholics really grew out of this confidence that uh, alcoholism was something that could be cured. It's an enormously you know, important story for us.
1: Yeah, like long before uh, SAMHSA or NADAC, there was this American Association for the Cure of Inebrity. Right. <laughs> Did that have something to do with uh, the whole uh, first idea that maybe this isn't a moral problem or a, a mental health problem, but a, an actual uh, disease problem?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was, it was one of the most encouraging developments, you know, up to that time. It was these these people who had founded these asylums and homes, which were, you know, small, generally small institutions, got together and uh, began to, to meet together and push, you know, in a programmatic way uh, the idea that uh, alcoholics could be helped. And many of them were doctors, but not all of them. And, um, you know, by the end of the 19th century, uh, there were, you know, a, a lot of... Different types of institutions helping alcoholics, including some state-run institutions, where they had actually taken the drunks out of jails and asylums and put them into, um, in a few cases anyway, several states,
1: into... 1810 the the sober house I think it was called uh, that had something to do with Benjamin Rush or something like things well, we see Yeah, that today. was
0: that was his idea, right? Yeah. He never it really wasn't implemented until after the Washingtonians, but okay. um, yeah. but yeah, Rush, you know, Benjamin Rush, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, was one of the first doctors to recognize that alcoholism was an illness, and he recognized also the the importance of um, Drunks being able to get sober outside their environment, but it was just—it was just kind of a blueprint when he died. But by the end of the 19th century, there were really dozens of uh, places where alcoholics could get help. It was still pathetically inadequate to the problem, but it was a very—you know—the the Keeley Institutes, etc. It was a very hopeful time. So, you know, it, that was right up until, uh, pro, you know, right up until Prohibition hit. And basically returned us to the dark ages in, in terms of how alcoholism was, uh, you know, was considered, and closed mo- almost all of the institutions. The Dwight, the last institution in Dwight, um, remained open until actually the 1960s. But um, uh, the Keeley Institutes were largely gone uh, by then, and you know, by the time Bill and Dr. Bob got together, there was very little help. Uh, anywhere for for alcoholics and you know the stigma came back in you know into force in and there was nobody arguing against it so it was it was a dark age.
1: Yeah my understanding is when Bill and Bob met uh, they had never even heard of the Washingtonians they didn't know a, a, about a lot of the history they were both members of the Oxford group but it, it wasn't until later someone told Bill Wilson about the Washingtonian history. Is that right?
0: Yeah, I, that is right. And, and he didn't know much about them. Um, and actually, the way that he talks about them in um, uh, in the twelve and twelve kind of misrepresents <laughs> major aspects of of the Washingtonians. But um, but it wasn't his fault. There was you know there was just no research on. There was nothing left. There were no. You know, there were no breadcrumbs anymore. Yeah, um, and and actually, you know, the, the the Association for the Cure of Inebrity um, gave birth to a medical journal that was the first journal to focus on the problem of alcoholism, and that was gone too. So a lot of wow. the science that a lot of the science that had been done in the late nineteenth century was completely forgotten. Yeah, uh, and it was everything started over you know, after Prohibition.
1: So where did did you go for a lot of your research? Uh, were you in AA, GSO archives? What institutes today sort of house the best data that's out there about the history of alcoholism?
0: I didn't use too many libraries. There aren't, there aren't too many. Yeah, um, I many about that. There were some things in the New York Public Library. Since AA is really only a part of this book, and yeah. you know, there are two chapters that are specifically dedicated to AA, I basically used the, the AA histories, you know, the kind of the up-close, um, intimate look at what that process was like. I did get to go to Illinois. I went to Springfield to look at the Keeley Institute papers. Mm-hmm. And um, I went to, um, I looked at the Marty Mann uh, papers, which are at Syracuse.
1: Oh, Nice.
0: And yeah, that, that's a real treasure trove, which was not undiscovered. I mean, there was a, there's a pretty good biography of, of Marty Mann. What was really exciting was they had tapes of her talking so I could actually hear her voice. Uh, so that was pretty much it. And you know, for the 19th century, I depended a lot on books that had been published because a lot, there was a lot of book, uh, book publishing around the alcohol problem. And a lot of those books are now available, you know, through Google. Google yeah. and scan them, which was incredibly helpful. The biography of, of John Hawkins was written by his son. I actually have that. Um, I have copies of that. That's still kicking around in places. So, you know, a little here, a little there. I don't claim that at all that this book is definitive or that mm-hmm. there there isn't lots of stuff out there still. Um, I was just trying to construct a narrative so that we could look at the big picture. And, and also, you know, along the way, to pay tribute to the to people who did so much to help help alcoholics.
1: Well, you uh, you have a shout-out to uh, Bill White and some of the other predecessors uh, who have started recording the history, and you even talk a little bit about uh, a, a mentor that inspired you to write this book.
0: I definitely want to pay tribute to, to Bill White. I mean, if, if he hadn't writ- written Slaying the Dragon, you know, I really don't know how I would have gotten started. Yeah. And um, and then once you know, once I had written it, I got in touch with him, and he was he was nothing but encouraging. Um, even though you might you might think another author would say, "Well, why are you writing the book I already wrote?" <laughs> you know, it's like he he's the opposite. You know, yeah. he um, you know he's the father of so much scholarship, and so I, I really my book stands on, on his research. I've told my sons the story, so I really do believe that, you know, our stories, as we all know, our stories are so important. Understanding our stories is so important to our sobriety. You know, I think that they've played a, uh, a huge role in history and making it possible for so many millions of us to get sober.
1: I'm a big believer that uh, history isn't just what happened way back when. I mean, even... You know, f- from 1980 to 2000, from 2000 and now just the research that's been done, you know, in the last uh, 10 years has really advanced things a lot. And, and you really talk about, I don't know if I'll pronounce either of these names right, uh, Dr. Uh, Volkow or, or Kube?
0: Yeah, I think it's Volkow. Um, Volkow. I think okay. she's she is from somewhere in Central Europe. Yeah, I'm not sure about the other pronunciation myself.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're probably like me. You, you read it more than hear it. But they yeah. they really have advanced the whole idea about uh, the brain and addiction.
0: The science has really, you know, exploded, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years. And, and I think permanently has ended the debate, um, you know, over whether... Failing, or if it's it's a medical problem, and um, and it's really important that we get we got that debate behind us. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's now widely recognized. And what what Marty Mann was saying, really from the 1940s on, that um, that alcoholism is an illness, that it's curable, and that society has a responsibility to help help alcoholics. I think those three points, which were the center of her finally been you know accepted by uh, society as a whole
1: yeah we would be remiss without uh, sort of crediting many of the sort of non-alcoholics that uh, helped our cause uh, here's another name I, i've never known if i pronounce it properly or not but uh, george uh, valent or valiant the psychiatrist yeah, right. that's right, uh, the natural history of alcoholism. Uh, I mean, he was a good friend to Alcoholics Anonymous. Can you tell us a little bit about how he sort of uh, advanced the whole game well, he of did alcoholism? This, yeah,
0: it, starting as somebody, a psychiatrist who had no understanding at all of, of alcoholism. He made it um, really his life work, and the great contribution was that he oversaw the the development of a longitudinal study of alcoholics over the course of of men, over the course of decades, which allowed him to really home in on on the alcoholics in that, um, in that sample and to really get a very granular view of how recovery worked and didn't work um, in their lives. You know, he tells the story of how, you know, when he was looking at the results of his research, he was really deeply disappointed at first to find that um, although in his his area of Massachusetts there was really widespread availability of support for alcoholics that, that the recovery rate was quite small when you looked at in their first in the in the early years after their their sobriety. But what he found was that when you looked at it at their careers subsequently that um even though they may not have gotten sober the first time they tried you know with each um each additional try a significant population does get sober and obviously we we have proof of that today you know when there are you know literally millions of people who are in recovery but he he was the one who really showed you know the importance of uh, persistence and, and people in um And helping people who wanted to continue to try to quit and and were eventually successful.
1: Yeah, not blaming them and not giving up on them. Right. Do you have your uh, book handy? I got it. Okay, I'm wondering if you would uh, read a little passage which really talks to sort of the more modern uh, look at uh, alcoholism. And this is uh, Waves of Sobriety. From page uh, two seventy-seven, starting off at White and McClellan.
0: Read right, up, and it's okay. referring to, to Bill White and, and Tom McClellan, who wrote many articles together. White like, certainly not just a historian. White is also um, an advocate um, and a researcher, and he's a Renaissance man when it comes to the issue of alcoholism. So he wrote he wrote with McClellan, and and this is describing one particular uh, article that they wrote. Mm-hmm. White and McClellan began their task by attempting to clear away the wreckage of decades of debate over the nature of alcoholism. They wrote, Our focus in this article is not on what addiction is, a disease, illness, disorder, habit, problem, etc., but on the temporal course of addiction and how the span of, of the disorder from onset through sustained recovery can be effectively managed at personal and at the personal and professional level. The first step—now, not quoting this is, this is me writing. The first step was to make clear that not all alcohol or drug problems were chronic. Most do not have a prolonged and progressive course. They wrote. All persons with AOD problems do not need specialized, professional, long-term monitoring and support. Many recover on their own with family or peer support. But the line between problem drinking and alcoholism was hard to decipher in the early years of a drinking career. White and McClellan called for research to identify early signs of progression. They also sought to reassure alcoholics, drug addicts, and their families. Among those who do need treatment, relapse is not inevitable, and all persons suffering from substance dependence do not require multiple treatments before they achieve stable, long-lasting recoveries, they wrote. Even in the most difficult cases, partial recoveries were possible. They further wrote, Recovery management strategies for persons with the most severe severe, and persistent disorders include multiple goals, reducing the number, intensity, and duration of relapse episodes, strengthening and extending the length of remission periods, reducing the personal and social costs associated with relapse, reducing the propensity for drug substitution and other excessive behaviors during early periods of recovery initiation and enhancing the quality of personal family life through both the remission and relapse phases of the disorder.
1: I read stuff like that and uh, it's just so eye-opening. In the little bit of research uh, I've done, I've found it's changed me in terms of my perspective. Uh, One example would be I think I used to be more tribal. I was a, a, a homer, a very pro-AA, and, and I sort of dismissed other uh, modalities, uh, things like harm reduction, uh, you know, other sort of, uh, you know, peer-to-peer approaches even. But the, the more you read about these things, uh, I, I felt more like a, a member of the larger recovery community. And, you know, I, I happen to be, go to AA, and that works for me. But 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 I feel, you know, shoulder to shoulder with, uh, you know, everybody on some sort of recovery path. And, and you know, other people's writings about these things has helped uh, open my eyes to a bigger picture, for sure.
0: I felt the same excitement. I really wasn't aware until I, I wrote the book about the emergence of you know, what you have to call a recovery community that is very broad and very diverse and, you know, is a realization of Bill Wilson's statement long ago that there are many paths to recovery, that we now all recognize that is, I think, a tremendous step forward. I think it's, you know, it's probably the most historical, historically significant change, you know, since the start of AA itself, you know, at a time when, you know, we're, living through this awful opioid epidemic uh it couldn't be it couldn't be more important and hopefully you know we won't relapse as we have in the past into um you know old habits of blaming addicts for their behavior and um you know and putting them in prison instead of helping them find recovery tools and i think the passage of the most recent um legislation that authorizes a lot of money for recovery support is is an indication that at least
1: watching all of these uh, organizations and these efforts you know sort of rising up doing good and then falling into ashes do you have any concerns uh, right now about be it AA or the larger recovery community about Either becoming too rigid, becoming too anything about being at risk of being reduced to a uh, place in uh, history.
0: You know, I'm not. I really am not uh, concerned mm-hmm. about the the danger of relapse at, at this point for the for the recovery movement. In part because there are now so many people in recovery. You know, we've hopefully reached a you know a point where it isn't possible for politicians to ignore you know, their lived experience of what it takes to help people who are addicted. That said, you know, there's always this dark part of us that wants to punish people who aren't like us, and I don't suppose I would never take off the table altogether the the danger of going back to old ways, but I, I do think that the part of the recovery community now is a very active advocacy. Uh, effort by faces and voices of recovery and fighting addiction and others that will go into the political ring and really fight this out in a way that of course AA can't i mean so so i'm i'm an optimist anyway i mean looking back over the history of, of alcoholism i think you know we have every reason to be optimistic but we just need to to continue to fight uh, there's still a lot of people who aren't getting the, the help that they need and Government is only scratching the surface with what they've spent so so far. You know, that's the nature of history. You know, the fighters fighters prevail.
1: Yeah. Just uh, to sort of uh, wrap up, I want to go back to uh, something, you know, your experience with uh, uh, Bill White, who didn't treat you as the competition, but just sort of embraced you into the community of of researchers, of journalists. And uh, I remember uh, he and Ernie Kurtz were talking and... uh, And it was about the question of uh, what if you want to research something and then you find somebody else has done it. And Ernie's approach was, well, that's no reason to stop. You're going to have a different perspective. You're going to have a different passion. You're going to write a different book. Uh, You know, go ahead and do it. And and that was eye-opening to me because there's been a few things I thought, oh, I'd like to do something about so-and-so. And then, ah, it's been done. And you know, I move on to something else. But uh, it's not like w- there was only ever one love song written,
0: <laughs> right? Well, I'd say you know that this field of history is wide open. That there are lots of stories that haven't been told. I think myself about at some point in the future writing more uh, in this area, just because you know there are so many there are so many interesting and important stories and and history is so important it's one of the ways that that hopefully we you know we avoid making the mistakes that we have in the past and mm-hmm. those mistakes have cost people dearly so i i would absolutely you know follow kurtz's you know kurtz's encouragement and and um and dig into the history more and, and there's a lot of interest in history in a.a but but there's a there's a a broader field of addiction history that I think um, could use could use support.
1: Yeah, I'm um, uh, getting prepared for a presentation I'm doing at uh, the 2019 iteration of the AA History Lovers Symposium, which is moving from Sedona to the Bay Area in Northern California. So. I'm doing something on sort of the debate over special interest groups. Bob Kay, who you might have met when you were in Toronto, he's uh, working on some uh, research he's done. And and, uh, I think this is great. Uh, More should be encouraged to do this sort of thing. Uh, when I was young in my sobriety and young in years, I had no interest in archives. I mean, let's not regale past glories. Let's prepare, you know, the recovery community for the still suffering, right? Like, uh, I, I was not nostalgic at all. But in, in abandoning that, uh, you're prone to making the same mistakes over again if you don't know your history, right?
0: Yeah, I think I think that's true, and um, and there's so much inspiration to be found there. I think that's you know so many you know so many have contributed to where we are today, and um, it's important to know their stories.
1: Yeah, what's uh, the best way for people to get a co- their own copy of uh, Drunks: The Story of Alcoholism and the Birth of Recovery?
0: Well. Um, I, I always say, you know, I, I worked for the American Booksellers Association for many years, so I always say, you know, start in your start in your local independent bookstore. Um, and um, but obviously, it's also widely available online and um, in every form. And there's even a uh, an audio book.
1: Oh, nice! Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it, um, really nice job done by the the narrator of that, which. Um, I definitely uh, can recommend, and um, so it's it's there for the for the taking. And I am um, always happy to talk to anybody about it uh, subsequently.
1: How do they get a hold of you then,
0: Chris? Well, so just my email address is c m is in Michael Feynman, at gmail.com.
1: Okay, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, that's very generous. Uh, did you consider narrating the book yourself?
0: No, because I read my last book, which was about the history of free speech, which is my day job. I work in, in civil liberties, and um, I'm the head of the, the National Coalition Against Censorship. But that was a painful experience that I did not want to repeat. It took, it, it took a long time, and I don't sound anywhere near as good as the, the guy that they found to, to read this book. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay well there's a, there's some history that other people can uh, avoid repeating <laughs> yeah yeah no
0: it's uh so they mostly get actors to do this and that yeah. they're the right people
1: time really well spent chris i've been looking forward to this for a long time and uh, i hope i see you somewhere on the sort of recovery trail uh, again soon i i really appreciate uh, the 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 sweat and effort you put into this book, and uh, it, it I, I just want to tell you I think it matters.
0: Well, thanks, Joe, and I, I'm a, I admire you as well, and I had hoped to be in San Francisco for the conference, but I, it just didn't work out time-wise, so I'm sure it'll be a great, uh, a great conference, and, and maybe we'll meet down the road in the next one.
1: Okay, you bet. Okay, look forward to that, Chris. Thanks so much for being part of this. Thank you. Well, you're still here. You hung in. I thank you for that. I hope you agree it was worth it. Show notes uh, are available at RebellionDogsPublishing.com. Go to ChrisFinan.com, C-H-R-I-S-F-I-N-A-N.com for uh, some photos and links uh, to where you can actually buy drunks in American history. It would be a great New Year's resolution. I really appreciate uh, all the support through the year. 2019 is just around the corner, depending on when you're listening to this, it might already be 2019. And this from wearing my IndyCan hat is The Velveteens. And it's a song I'm going to say about the birth of recovery. Don't you feel better? Thanks for being part of the Rebellion Downs Radio.